Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Sam Taylor Johnson is on a mission. Between crafting moving meditations across visual art and film, beating cancer twice, and being a fiercely dedicated wife and mom, this British-born force has a knack for beautifully blurring the lines between our interior and exterior lives. With the ability to both intimidate and inspire vulnerability in those around her, that hypnotic 107-minute film of David Beckham sleeping, yeah, that was her. It's Taylor Johnson's warm yet driven demeanor and sharp eye for emerging talent that make her a natural storyteller who can't help but get at the heart of things. This dance between the personal and the public is a fitting preoccupation for the artist, namely given Taylor Johnson's experience navigating her own life's duality. A member of the influential Young British Artist Collective alongside Damien Hirst in the 90s, Taylor Johnson found success as a visual artist earning a Turner Prize nomination and the Ely Cafe Prize for Most Promising Young Artist. But that didn't quite cut it for her. After fighting for her life through both colon and breast cancer, while raising two small children, Taylor Johnson set her sights on another mission, directing. While women directors only make up 8% of the U.S. film industry, this path has proven fulfilling both personally and professionally as she ultimately became one of the highest-grossing female directors with the mega-hit Fifty Shades of Grey and met her now-husband on the set of her first full-length movie, the critically acclaimed Nowhere Boy. Sam and Aaron Taylor Johnson combined their names when they married, a small detail that's reflective of the uniqueness and strength of the seemingly predestined partnership. Nowhere Boy, like all of her work, is multi-layered and in some ways feels like a precursor to their most recent joint project, a Million Little Pieces, a film based on the best-selling and highly controversial James Frey book, which stars Aaron as Frey's broken, reluctantly recovering addict in a gorgeous script the two co-adapted and co-wrote. In the film, which debuts in the U.S. in early December, Aaron gives a visceral, sometimes hard-to-watch performance, struggling in recovery. The movie was filmed in just 20 days, a rare thing in Hollywood. But despite the challenge... The result is deeply emotional, immersive, and even at moments, surreal. But of course, Sam Taylor Johnson's no stranger to big risks, hard truths, and yes, challenges. Because as we all know, the mission of pulling off the impossible is always the best part of any story, the part worth waiting for. Sam Taylor Johnson, it is such an honor to have you on Unstyled today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. There's a million things I actually want to talk to you about today. I'm absolutely kind of fascinated with every aspect of your life. So I want to go back to the first film that you directed, which was Nowhere Boy. It's based on a memoir by John Lennon's half-sister, correct? Julia. Julia. Yeah. That period that you framed the movie around in this memoir is really about this transition from being motherless in a way and mm. being raised by his aunt Mimi 
to finding this family in the Beatles and specifically with Paul McCartney. And when I was reading about you, I actually didn't know that you grew up without your parents too. Yeah, I had, I, I guess you don't necessarily always understand why you connect with material. So when I read that, I remember the feeling of reading it. I was on a train going from the south of England to London, from Devon, I think I was going. And I remember just my face was just wet from crying and tears and snot and everything. And I got to the end of it. And a friend of mine who was a director, Joe Wright, great director, he had sent it to me and said, look, you read this and see how you feel when you finish, but I just feel like it's your movie. You should make it. He said, but there's going to be some obstacles because there's another director already working on it. I was like... Oh, thanks. And I read it and just my heart felt like it was just being ripped out. And then when it finished with the song Mother, I was just in bits. I did have plenty of absent parents because I had a mom, dad and stepfather who were all pretty absent. I think I never really sort of connected until later when people would say, well, it's very similar. And I'd think, no, yes, I guess it is. And there was a couple of similarities with it, and especially there was a moment where he didn't know where his mom lived and she lived really close and he didn't know where she was, and I had that same thing. Was that almost worse, actually, like when you were 15, to find yeah. out a few years later that she was just living a few doors down? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't so long after, but yeah, she sort of disappeared, and actually... To be honest, I try not to talk about it because I'm trying to sort of like have a good relationship with her now. Yeah. So um, no one tell her that I'm talking about it and we'll be fine. Um, But but it was difficult. You know, she had... um, Does she have a lot of regrets? Not that I know. Really? There's no sense of that necessarily. There's no conversations. Yeah, she was living three doors down from where we were living alone, me, my sister and my brother. I think that it was they're... a strange time. And when I think back to it, I have n- The thing is, I'm quite empathetic, so I do kind of understand what she was going through and the process that took her there, but it is also still strange. But I think the similarity that I took away, and certainly I don't know the specifics about your relationship with your mom, but the fact that you and John Lennon both really immersed yourself in art and Mm. in sort of exploring Mm. this means of storytelling. And your art was really interesting in the 90s, right? And it was kind of dark, too, but also really surreal. I mean, how would you describe your art? I don't know. I mean, when I look back at it now, I was sort of almost trying to have everyone else express my pain, I guess. There's a lot of decomposition and sort of like text. Yeah. It, it is very Damien Hurst, or maybe Damien Hurst was very Sam Taylor Wood yeah, at the time. Yeah, let's put it that way around. Okay. So. But, uh, but I made this short film, or it was like a film installation then, of a young actor... I said, just cry, just cry and have a nervous breakdown for eight minutes. I'm just going to film you. I could you. do that. If you ever need to yeah. do that again, I'm like your girl. I really could do that. And that was, you know, that was very early on in my art world career. And then later on, had 28 actors. I spent three years photographing actors crying. I would travel all around the world practically following whoever would say yes to me photographing them crying. So this series is called The Crying Men, and it's Paul Newman, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Robin Williams, um, Ryan Gosling. And I would just write and say, you know, I'd love to take a portrait of you, and then I'd arrive and then say, and I need you to cry, not smile. And they'd be like, 
oh, no, I'm not going to do that. But then it was a very quick negotiation and I managed to get pretty much everyone to do it. But after those three years of doing it, I was getting so depressed. But I realized, again, I always think my artwork or film work or whatever work is three steps ahead of me. It sort of needs to deal with something for me, almost. Sort of blazing the trail ahead of you. Yeah, I kind of catch up with it and later realize, oh, I guess I was using that to try and express what I was not expressing and thinking or feeling. The last person might have been Robin Williams that I photographed, actually. I was going to ask you, I don't know if this is even appropriate, but when I saw that you had photographed um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Robin Williams, did you notice anything different about them? Or was there anything sort of profound that you took away thinking back about photographing them? No, but obviously I'm aware the project was called The Crying Men. I photographed people that I admired for their craft and their brilliance. And it was like the perfect wish list lying in bed going, wouldn't it be amazing to photograph, you know, Forrest Whitaker as well as in it and Lawrence Fishburne. And and then obviously with the hindsight of what's happened and looking at those photographs, they have a different resonance to see, you know, that I'm asking them to cry and to show pain. And those photographs do that. Or to share their pain with us. Or to us. share their pain, yeah. exactly. And the, the thing that I love most about the Philip Seymour Hoffman is something very simple, but he he took his shoes off and sat down and then he just curled his toes in. And it wasn't something that, you know, he did knowingly, I don't think. You know, he just curled them in and they were sort of all scrunched up. And it's such a powerful part of that photograph. It's easy for to project onto the photograph now. And in the moment, there was no sense, of course, of anything. But that's often true of anyone who's going through depression. You don't always have an awareness that, that they're going to go to that point. Yeah. talk about Fifty Shades of Grey, too. Ugh. No, no, I only want to say this. No, yes, we can. You know what, we don't have to say, you don't have to say anything. <laughs> we can, we but can. But I do want to actually, you know that was the fourth highest grossing film ever directed by a woman. Yeah. Which is, first of all, that's pretty fucking incredible. You sort of beat Catherine Hardwick's record, who also left after the first film yeah. of Twilight. Yeah. And I just was curious, did either of you ever talk about that? No, it's funny. I feel like... I'd love to sit down and have that conversation with her. I've seen her out and about and said hi to her, but we've never had that conversation. But I think she went through similar, well, different, but similar pain with that filmmaking process. It was tough. It was tough. I'm just going to keep saying it was tough. (laughs) I think that that's okay. I mean, I can think of so many things in my professional life that have been really difficult, and we just have Mm. to imagine that they somehow fortify us for other experiences. I don't know. That gets to a point where I'm like... You're like, fuck that. I wish I'd never had it. I'm fortified. I am. It's like, (laughs) this is character building. It's like, my character's fucking built. That didn't feel like there was an end at a certain point. But like you said, it was high grossing and all of that. And I, I remember I was going to the supermarket and it was out and I guess there was a lot of publicity around it. I was crossing the parking lot and this guy shouted from the other side of the parking lot, hey, aren't you the director who directed Fifty Shades of Grey? And I was like, yeah, it was really hard, you know. It was really difficult. And 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 Aaron was like, just say thank you. 
Just say thank you. You don't have to tell everyone. You need to use that scene in a film, actually. It's really funny. It was one of those experiences where... You know, people say, in hindsight, would you do it again? I'd be like, no, of course I wouldn't. But and all the things that I learned making that movie that I didn't want to learn really did help me with the million little pieces. But it was a brutal experience because I went in with a vision and that vision was sort of systematically beaten and taken away. And that's the hardest thing, I think, for a creative is to go in full of creative ideas and that's the reason you're hired and then for you to then not be able to use that is quite hard. I guess the thing that I'm most proud of, other than surviving it, was um, <laughs> is I that mean, it worked. It worked, and it was a tough book to get to screen, but ultimately it worked. It did work. I mean, that was also the blessing. Dakota and Jamie were the <laughs> nicest people, and we became a sort of little team of musketeers getting through it. Well, that's wonderful. That's obviously probably your leadership and the energy that you created on set, Thank you. despite all the crappy stuff that was going on. And you've been pretty vocal about coming off of Fifty Shades of Grey. Like, how shocking at this point that mm. there's still so few projects for, for mm. women directors. And I think the, is the percentage now, is it 4%? Yep, 4% of directors are women, yep. Yeah, I mean... It's quite astounding. And it's it's interesting because the needle feels like it's moving, but I don't feel like it actually is. So it's a lot of talk about it, which is great that it's now out and there are discussions, but it's still tough. Well, what do you feel like needs to happen? Because I think something that we talk about at Refinery29 is that it's not just about women getting the projects. It's about women getting the funding. It's about women getting the meetings and the access. It's the meetings and the access. It's It's right at the start point. That's the hardest part. So what do what do we need to do to, to change it? What do you think needs to happen? Having these conversations. It's these conversations that then get picked up and people listen and but it's really it's the it's the industry. It comes down to the people who finance the movies and and it's the lists. It's a, it's about getting on the on the master list of directors. That's the hardest thing. Is there really one master list I've of directors? I've seen the list. There was a movie I was I desperately wanted to make. And they said, oh, there's a list of directors. Oh, there's a list? Can I see that list? Sure. The list. The list. Not one woman director. And This is this year. Uh, this was two years ago. It's getting better. It's getting better in that there's, you know, 20 men and Greta Gerwig's now on there, which is amazing. The strange thing for me is that every movie I've made, I've gone back to ground zero, as if I've never made a movie. So I don't think that's uncommon for, for women in your yeah. industry. I think that so many women, I've read interviews about the fact that they thought that a project, you know, sort of a really sort of high-profile project was going to sort of, you know, catapult them to this mm. whole new stratosphere where they have they would have more access, they would have more connections, they yeah. would, you know, have way more scripts coming their way, and yeah. it just doesn't. It doesn't. And I went from making a big Hollywood blockbuster to shooting something in 20 days with almost no money. I guess the thing is about the people that fund, the people that green light, you know, having the trust and faith that we can get the job done. Yeah, and also having more women running studios. I've always found that everything I've ever wanted to make, movie-wise, I've had to literally stalk, bang on doors, pitch up, turn up to parties where I know the people are, say, hey, can I get on that list? You know, there was one producer for a movie. I flew to L.A. to meet him, and he cancelled my meeting 
three, four times until on the way to the airport, because I had to leave to get back, I just stopped at his office and I said, I've, I've had three, four meetings, I'm just going to sit and wait here until he shows up. And then I got the five minutes. In that five minutes, I was like, this is how I'd make it, this is what I'd do, and I've prepared, and here's... And I had lookbooks of how I'd do it, character books of how I'd do it, and everything, and, and I got the job. That film ultimately fell through... But that's how I had to get it, was I had to persist through four cancelled meetings. But it's getting in the room. That's the hardest thing. It's kicking that door down when it slams in your face. So let's talk about a million little pieces. I love that you saw a movie in this book because when mm. I read this book in the early aughts, it was just around the time that I was launching Refinery29 with my business partners. And it was a very weird time in the world then. Mm. I remember reading that book and feeling like I gave myself completely over to it. Me too. But a million little pieces. It was deemed a memoir by James Frey and obviously like hugely, hugely successful. There's a lot of controversy around it. There were elements of it that were not real, mm -hmm. but it is very much based on his real life and yeah. his real experiences. You said in some interviews that you immediately saw this as a film, mm. but that's a long time to wait, you know, to actually yeah. sort of like, and I'm, and I know that, you know, in your, in your world and in, in the film world, yeah. people can wait like 30 years to actually, you know, bring, yeah. bring a film to fruition. But had you been thinking about it over the years? Well, here's the thing. I wasn't a filmmaker then. I just knew it was going to be a great movie because the character was so strong and such a strong protagonist that remains in your DNA almost. I felt like I held a piece of him in my stuff for a long time and kind of carried that sense of him because he so affected me and, and made me think, feel, hurt, all of those things. And I think, you know, the, the brilliance of the writing... Uh, stayed with me since that time. And I kept looking at different filmmakers were coming and going, different studios were making it. And, and I'd always get that twinge of, oh, God, I wish I was making that movie. How great. Oh, I can't wait to see it. I wonder what they'll do. And then, you know, it never ultimately got made. And I think it got, you know, hurt by, the same as, you know, James, the book, everything, by the controversy, hurt it in the sense that people were too afraid to then take that book and, and do anything with it. And Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I never felt like what had happened to me when I read that book, how it affected me. I didn't feel that that changed after the controversy. I was thinking about what project next to do and Aaron and I were looking for something to do together and it came around, my, my agent said, oh, have you ever read A Million Little Pieces? And I just went, wait, what, what? 
And he said, yeah, I think their rights have gone back to the author. And it was as simple as this. I got hold of him. I said, I would like to try and option your book and and make the movie of it. And he was like, okay. And I said, so obviously we're getting to the business of it and someone will figure out the money. I said, I don't want any money. And I think I paid a dollar. I paid a dollar for the rights to make that book so that some money was exchanged. And then he said, I don't want to be around unless you want me. I won't come to set unless you want me to. And there was a point where Aaron and I wrote the script over 18 months. And I said, James, do you want to read it? And he was like, do you want me to read it? I said, no, actually, I don't. (laughs) He said, do you want me to see the movie? I said, let's see. Yeah, I guess because I'd had such a rough experience with an author before. And he said, no, I, I wrote it in the spirit of art. Just create in the same spirit and do whatever you want. Just have fun with it. I was like, oh, that's like a gift, total gift. And so that was it. It was tough to make because, I guess, again, because it had the controversy attached to it, people were afraid to invest in it. So we we ended up shooting it for almost, well, very little like for... four million, right? Less. Less than Just that. less, I think. And 20 days. We shot it in 20 days. But it felt like it was something that had to be done. I felt like I I was kind of positioned to to do it and it was going to be made even though we had to, you know, edit the book from 500 and something pages and we wrote a 200-page script that then became a 90-page But ultimately, it really felt like it was the story of James. The distillation process brought us back to what was important, James and the journey of recovery and addiction and the pain of that and then the community that offered hope and took him through sort of from the darkness, I guess, to the light. Your husband, Aaron Taylor Johnson, who you co-wrote the movie with and who stars in the movie, it's so physical for him. Mm-hmm. And it's a very physical movie. You really feel yeah. the visceral effects, not just of of addiction, but the people that have to observe it and really sort of like observe yeah. it closely and can't really turn away. Was it hard to see your husband in that state? From what I read about him on Nowhere mm. Boy, I mean, part of the reason why you really wanted him for your film was because he showed up as John Lennon, you know, yeah. to meet you. He's and very immersive. He Whatever he's working on, he, Aaron slowly disappears and whichever character starts to emerge. Is that hard? It's hard when it was Ray from Nocturnal Animals, where, yeah. where he plays a psychopath that doesn't wash. <laughs> that movie was um, really hard for me. It was really hard for everyone and yeah. even harder for me living with that character. Uh. <laughs> and he grew long nails and dirt and and he was also, you know, eating a ton of burgers and drinking because he said, I just have to feel toxic from the inside. Otherwise, uh. if I'm not toxic on the inside, no one's going to believe you know, obviously I know how he works and I know that he becomes who he's playing. And so as I was approaching him with this and we were writing it, I was thinking, oh God, this is going to be hard. You know, I had to lose a lot of weight and get kind of, you know, scrawny and 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 un- unwell, basically. He became that. And so that's hard is also because, you know, he doesn't really switch off and he stays in that character for the time post-filming as well. There's a sort of, you know, recovery process which can take a couple of months. And then when we were filming, I James isn't particularly physical, but I know that 
Aaron can move and can express himself physically. So it was it was a good way to use that to express some of the scenes which are like in a monologue within the book. Yeah. And, you know, how to do that without a voiceover, but just to see pain in a different way or discomfort. I mean, one of my favorite scenes is between James and Lily where they're they're recounting their past drug use and and they do it without words. And it's fun at first. And you think that at first you think, wait, are they really taking drugs? And then and then you realize they're recounting it through sort of mime and then it gets really sad. And it's sort of beautifully played without any words. I think that's what I love so much about the book is that it's very, very hard to read. There's a lot of really tough material in there mm. that seems physically painful. But there's so many moments of tenderness that kind of rescue you. Yeah. And I think that that's the relationship between James Frey and Leonard, who is played by Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. And, I mean, he just seems like the most tender person in the he world. Is. He's also the funniest fucking person ever as you can see by his outfit choices. Ultimately, one of the things that stayed with me that James said to me is that he said as he was writing it, whenever he went into the darkness, he would quite quickly try and bring in something light to sort of lift you up again. And so when we were making the film, that stayed in my mind. One friend said to me specifically, she said that it kind of is like a gallows humor that you get inside the the treatment center where... The darkness sometimes, you know, the tears that you cry are so heavy, but the laughter that that you can laugh is so hard as well. So she said you can laugh so intensely with the people around you about some of the most devastating things. It's really, you know, it's it's the one person that steps up for you or the community that supports you through that. So ultimately, I wanted to make a film that was about addiction and but gave you hope, that really gave as much hope as possible and as much light as possible. And just the generosity of people in those, Mm. in sort of the most desperate moments when you feel like you can't be betrayed anymore. You know, he really Mm. feels just like the desperation to want to be better, to want to be what people want him to be. Yeah. And I think that that is probably the darkest part of of Mm. those kinds of relationships is just the disappointment on both yeah. sides. There's just a moment where where his brother just says, you have, to, you have to try. And he says, oh, I'm trying. It's just the way that Aaron says, oh, I'm trying. That just kills me every time. Because you can see, you've seen how hard he's trying, but no one necessarily can see how hard just taking the first step of going into the treatment center was. And that being the most difficult moment and, and that being, I'm trying. I think it was ultimately made the right way that it should never have been a studio movie. It should never have been a big budget movie. And it was made, you know, for nothing on a shoestring. And, you know, Billy Bob Thornton practically worked for nothing, had to share a trailer with two other people, which he said he hadn't done for, couldn't even remember if he actually had done that. And so in a way, the kind of tight community spirit in which it was made is reflected on screen. And and because we shot it so fast and for nothing, there's no frills, there's no glossing. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that it felt very tangible and and close to the edge as we were filming. And the the feeling that everyone had was the anxiety. I'd say to Billy, Bob and Aaron, I was like, we don't have time for one take. You just got to nail it. 
And so they were like, oh, okay. So everyone was sort of super adrenalized and on their toes and everyone was in their zone all the time. So I think for the characters to then be portrayed in that sense of, you know, isolation but coming together and not really knowing, you know, was almost helped by the fact that we had pretty much no time for anything to be luxuriated in. So everyone had to be just really sharp and really sort of in the headspace of their character. But do you think that that kind of sharpened you a bit as mm-hmm. a director? especially 100%. Of- I think, like I said, I mean, if anything great came from Fifty Shades, it would be that I could see where things could be tightened up. But it was real kind of going back to the basics and, and the fun of doing that and, the, and being able to be wildly creative and physically creative in that way was amazing. So you co-wrote the script. It's a, mm-hmm. obviously a really emotional and dense script, I'm sure. Yeah. And figuring out, it's a very long book, and just figuring out what to include in the movie, especially given the fact that you only had 20 days to shoot it. Yeah. Do you find in those kinds of circumstances the benefits of your sort of synergy with your husband come out, or was it yeah. really intense and like you wanted to kill each other? No, not at all. The, the great thing about working together is I know through the blink of an eye, what kind of headspace he's in and whether he's in the right headspace for that scene. So I can navigate very quickly if he's in the right headspace for what we're about to shoot. So that's being able to just go, nope, not, yep, that, you know, that. And to be able to sort of take him to that place quickly is quite amazing. That is really amazing. Yeah. You're lucky. Well, I don't want to say you're lucky because you know what? Great relationships are hard work. So yeah, it's true. I know, and I'm lucky, <laughs> and you're lucky. <laughs> so you and your husband met on Nowhere Boy, and there's just I read so many interviews with him about the fact that it really was sort of love at first sight, wasn't mm, it? It was this sort of soulmate kind of energy, yeah. however you choose to describe it. But given how long it takes for your husband to kind of become that character. Mm. Is that Was that tough on your kids? Or do they just like look at what you do and just think it's totally incredible or do they think they just don't even give a shit? Don't even give a shit, I think. Or they don't, it's not that so much as they don't notice. They've always kind of known it. It's just who you are. It's just who we are. And I think, you know, since Nowhere Boy, we hadn't worked together. So we, you know, we could afford one on, one off. You know, he would do a movie, I'd stay home with the kids and switch out. And then with this one, because the schedule was 20 days, we had Aaron's mom come stay. And so she was home with the kids. And then we stayed close to home. We were filming in Pomona, doubling as Wisconsin in the winter. It was 80 degrees, crushed ice from Seven <laughs> Eleven to try and make it look cold. And <laughs> brilliant cold acting, even though everyone was sweating in these great big jackets. And yeah, we try and sort of, we try and balance it as much as possible with the kids. And, and yeah, when, again, going back to the character who played for Tom Ford, in Nocturnal Animals, that he woke up thinking the bed was on fire one morning because the kids and I were saging him. We were just like burning sage around him. Come on, let's clear daddy. It was just that funny thing where the kids would walk towards him and then take a big sort of circle around, not even realizing, I'm just going to go get that apple, but I'm going to go a really long way around him. <laughs> really? Was it that? Was he that fragrant? It's just that fragrance and that energy. After that, I was like, please, romantic comedy, anything, <laughs> something, something light and fluffy. Are you going to be working on a romantic comedy? What's next? I don't know what's next. It's tough because everything I read you, or everything I think about, you think, do I want to spend you know, two years in this headspace because ultimately it's too 
two, two and a half years. And A Million Little Pieces was an intense headspace to be in. We did a lot of research. You know, we spent a lot of time with James. We went to the treatment center. You've become friends with him, haven't you? Yeah, he's great. I absolutely love him. So right now I'm reading, thinking, do I want to be in this headspace? Now that I know. You've actually been through some really difficult health challenges too. You had yeah. colon cancer when you were really young. Yeah, twenty nine. Twenty nine. How did yeah. you? How did you know that you had it? The, I had just given birth to my daughter, and I just couldn't recover. And I went to see three different doctors, and I was misdiagnosed left, right, and center. And then finally, were you I just tired or something? Or well, I was just I was tired, but I was losing weight. I lost. I don't know, a lot of weight very rapidly. My hair was coming out and I was passing blood and I and I was telling everyone all these symptoms. They're like, yeah, it can happen after. And I was like, okay. It is important for people to, you know, your, your instincts are, there's something wrong, I know there is. And then I would eat and my stomach would bend me double immediately. And so I had plenty of symptoms, but... Yeah, I got I got misdiagnosed a lot of times, and then it turns out I had colon cancer, and then my daughter was just a few months old, and I had you know pretty pretty tough surgery, and uh, it took me a good couple of years, and then and then three years later I got breast cancer, and that was misdiagnosed as well. How was that misdiagnosed? Oh, it's nothing. It's probably just a cyst. Uh, just like that, even though I had the histories, and then so I had a mastectomy. I went through chemotherapy, all of that, that and that's. I'm sure I know that's why I'm tough because put me in front of hospital doors, I am a gibbering wreck. I could just, I can't walk in. I want to throw up. I want to run. I want to cry. Do you know what the worst part is for me when I look at my phone and I see my doctor's calling with the the blood results? I'm always just like, or the mammogram results? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's the worst. I want to talk about like how you start the the sort of habit or the practice of meditating when well, you don't feel like you you can. It's so hard for me. It's interesting because I decided, I've always not practiced yoga, and so I, I had that feeling around me anyway, but I needed meditation. And bef- it was interesting that six months before I got Fifty Shades of Grey, I had started to meditate. I had reached out to the David Lynch Foundation, Mm -hmm. and they do classes and you go for one hour, four days in a row, and then that's it, job done. Ever since doing that, it's it's life-changing because it just gives you an inner inner peace. And it's something which is hard to explain to people, but just that sitting still, which is the hardest thing to allow yourself time to do, that the fact that you can't allow yourself, yourself and your mental state 20 minutes but i actually feel like even though it's less convenient now than it ever was i need it even more there's a saying you should meditate 20 minutes a day but if you're really really busy you should meditate for an hour i mean that's how i feel (laughs) but it's hard with kids because i sometimes sit to meditate and then i hear one of my kids standing behind me knowing not to stop me but they're there and then I hear I also have three dogs and I had the little one yapping to come out and then the big one comes and then I'm screwed <laughs> so, but you still do it you still, still manage to do it I've realized first thing in the morning is the worst time for me I have to do it sort of late afternoon before kids come home how long have you been living in Los Angeles for I think nearly seven years and do you love it I like where we are, but then the other day I came out of our house. We'd just decorated our house and garden for Halloween. So we had, you know, everything like 
plastic bats, things everywhere. And some friends came in and out the house with their kids. And and then Aaron was leaving because he's working on a movie right now. And then I was about to go out the front door, down the steps to say goodbye. And Aaron just screamed, stop. And I, and I stopped. There was a rattlesnake. And I stepped over it just in the nick of time because I heard him say stop. So I would have put my foot on it. But so I had to call the fire department. But here's the other strange thing is that two days before I was photographing Ozzy Osbourne for his new album cover because I love Ozzy and I was photographing that he wanted a snake so we had a snake and there was a snake handler. And I said, oh, I've never seen one but I've been here seven years and I maybe, I hike all the time. What do I do if I actually see a rattlesnake? That was two days before. He said, you take a photograph and you dial 911 because it's life-threatening and you get the fire department and they come around. So I was like, I got this. I know what I'm doing, everyone. And they came around and uh, I was like, I'm sorry, I know you've got fires to put out. And they're like, no, we have to do this. All because you were photographing Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy saved my life. <laughs> oh my God. And all the great headlines. <laughs> oh, my God. Sam Taylor-Johnson, it's been such a pleasure to have you on Style today. It's such an honor to talk to you. Thank and I'm you. just such a huge fan. And congratulations so on A Million Little Pieces. December 6th? Yes. In select theaters? In very select theaters. It's a little movie. Please go with everyone you know. I hope you're inspired after hearing Sam's story. For even more unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head over to refinery29.com to find this episode and more. And make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was produced by Jay Brunson and Chelsea Sanders, with production assistance by Kate Spencer. Unstyled was edited by Anna Costanza and Alicia White, and our writer is Leah Carroll. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruest at Argo Studios and Gotham Podcast Studios. We'll be back soon with another episode of Unstyled next week. And until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.